I'm going to pick up where we've been in our series in Mark, and just as a reminder, just to kind of orient you again, the, as Jesus arrives at the beginning of chapter 11 in the triumphal entry, uh, he starts to engage over the course of chapters 11 and 12, uh, particularly with the religious leaders. And what he initiates and what they kind of sustain for a long time is a uh, protracted debate about what real faith, about what the real religion looks like. And this is really the end of that. So we pick up reading in Mark 12 at verse 35. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes, And like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we certainly need wisdom whenever we turn to God's Word, but uh, there's a lot of challenging stuff here, so uh, both to understand and to actually think about how to put into practice. So let's ask the Lord to teach us. Father, we pray that you would open our ears, that we may hear, that you would open our hearts, that we can receive, and open our hands, that we can respond. By your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I confess something to you? Uh, I have a pet peeve on Instagram. It is pastors who post pictures of themselves studying. You You know, if you're friends with anybody who's a pastor, you know the shot that I'm talking about. It's always a coffee shop. And the, uh, the pour-over, ethically-sourced coffee, <laughs> and several books arranged in a way that demonstrate clearly they're not actually reading them, because all the spines are right there, so you can see. They're just slightly askew on top of each other. Uh, I joke... Uh, I joke not that I'm, I am confessing this. this is actually I do judge every pastor who puts that on there. Uh, 
<laughs> I confess that because, uh, not because I don't know what they think, but because maybe they're actually just enjoying it and want others to enjoy it with them. And I'm the one who's got the problem. Uh, pastors are an insecure bunch. I don't know if you know that or not. Some of you may have suspected it. Uh, I've been around pastors my whole life. My, my dad's a pastor. Um, so I've seen plenty of this firsthand. Uh, and of course, I know lots of pastors. Uh, we're insecure because, uh, well, it's, it's easy to compare yourself, isn't it? Uh, it's easy to compare your gifts. It's easy to compare the size of your churches. It's easy to be insecure when you get up and talk in front of people for a living. It's easy to be insecure because uh, ministers used to be a very trusted uh, profession. And yet, you know, year after year as they do these studies on the, you know, who are the most trusted or least trusted professions, you know, ministers have been plummeting for decades now. Uh, People used to come to us for advice and now they can just Google something. Um, And again, I'm not saying any of this for your pity. Uh, I say it as a way of acknowledging that those of us who are religious, and maybe even especially those of us who are supposed to talk about the faith, fall prey so easily to pretense, fall prey so easily to performance, fall prey so easily to putting on a show of our religiousness, of our would-be holiness. And this is what Jesus has been dealing with over the course of these two chapters from different angles. And, you know, you may recall if you've been in this series with us, different groups have sort of cropped up uh, along the way with their particular interests, some of them with legitimate questions and concerns, some of them with ridiculous scenarios. It's been, it's quite an interesting section of Mark. But this question of what makes us righteous, what real righteousness looks like, we started to hone in on last week when Jesus talked about the first and greatest commandment and the second, which is like it. But here, as Jesus takes the reins of the conversation back, he focuses our attention, or rather asks us who our attention is focused on, and how that might change our perspective. Who and how. The who is maybe the obvious thing. So again, as, as we've been saying, Jesus was having this sort of protracted conversation with these religious leaders, but we find out in, in verse 34, the end of last week's passage, that with that conversation about the great commandment, the crowd goes quiet. Jesus had left it hanging, had left this scribe and the crowd around them hanging with the statement that he wasn't far from the kingdom of God, which begged a question, what would it mean to me to actually arrive at the kingdom of God? And it leaves everybody thinking. And so Jesus takes the, con- the reins of the conversation back, and he immediately steers it back to the question of the Messiah, 
who is the Christ. Remember, those are the Hebrew and Greek words for the anointed one that Israel was waiting for. He steers it back there, which is why the crowd is as excited at the end of verse 37, because that's what they're interested in. The rest of the, most of the crowd is not interested in the finer points of the law. They're interested in the Messiah. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 11, they were celebrating on Palm Sunday that, that the Messiah had arrived. And so Jesus begins with a rhetorical question in verse 35. Uh, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And the reason we know this is a rhetorical question is because Jesus gladly accepts this title. Back in chapter 10, on his way toward Jerusalem, blind Bartimaeus had called out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus answers him. And when he's entering Jerusalem in chapter 11, they're singing to him and they're saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Jesus knows everybody believes this because the whole idea of the Messiah comes from the king, the heir of David that they're waiting for. So it's all over the place. So it's a rhetorical question to refocus them, to say, let's get back to the question of the Messiah. So that's not the problem. But then he brings this up, verse 36, and this gets very confusing. He says, look, David wrote a psalm, you all know it, and everyone would have known it, Psalm 110. Uh, I don't know if it's right off the t- there on the top of your head, but uh, this was one of the messianic psalms, one of those that predicted and talked about the, the Messiah that was to come. And it begins with the lines that Jesus quotes. And it's really the beginning line, the Lord said to my Lord, that, they, that Jesus focuses on, which is confusing. So let me, let's, let's unpack a little bit about what's going on here. Uh, in English... We have two lords. Uh, actually, even in the Greek that Mark was written in, it's still the same word. Kurios, right? The Kurios said to my Kurios, which sounds a little confusing. But what Jesus expects, and Jesus was probably even speaking in Aramaic to <laughs> confuse the matter even more, is that everybody knows the Hebrew in which they're different words. So if you, look at it, if you look at Psalm 110 in most English translations, the first Lord will be in all caps uh, because that is the proper name of God, uh, Yahweh, which there's a scribal tradition of how they, how they sort of pass that down and being very careful about saying it or translating it or anything like that. Uh, but it, so it's often just simply glossed as the Lord. Uh, the second Lord is the generic term for somebody who's a ruler, Adonai, which that could apply to God at times, but uh, applies to the king, certainly. So it is God saying to my king, sit at my right hand. And I just cover all that to clear up what's, who is talking to whom. So it's God talking to the king. But when, what Jesus is interested in is the possessive pronoun, my. David is saying, God said to my Lord, my king, sit at my right hand. 
And Jesus' question is, how is it that David would refer to the coming Messiah, his son or great, 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 however many greats, grandson, how is it that he would call him Lord? And this is a big question, though it may not make much sense to us. Who cares, right? I mean, like, Messiah is supposed to be a big deal, right? Ah, but we're thinking as modern people, where what is to come is always better than what was before. But to the ancient mind, even still to some degree in traditional societies, in the modern, in the modern world, what was, came before is what is, is better than what will come. Does that make sense? They thought of what was greater. So nobody in a traditional society, even now, would say that somebody younger should be honored by somebody older. Well, the other way around. If you're younger, you honor those who are older. That's how it works. And so for David to say this, Jesus is pointing out, means something strange is happening indeed. And his hearers hadn't picked it up. The Messiah must be something great. Now, here is where it really lands. Everybody knows Jesus is talking about himself. So not only is he saying something strange about, uh, about David the older honoring the younger, they know Jesus is talking about himself because he's done all of this to openly acknowledge that he is the Messiah. All the symbolism of the triumphal entry, all these things have been so that Jesus intentionally displayed that he was the son of David arriving. So while he doesn't, while he's indirect, he is crystal clear that what he is saying is, I am greater than David. But how? Again, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, we wonder why sometimes the crowd turns on him, but you see Jesus keeps doing things to get himself in trouble. Jesus is portraying himself as being greater than the greatest king that Israel has ever had. Now, it's evocative, and Jesus doesn't tease this out. This is also important to recognize, right, that Jesus leaves that lingering allows them to think about it. In fact, this is characteristic of Jesus through the whole of his ministry. He actually does not talk, especially in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't hear Jesus say a lot about his identity and about what it means, you know, that he is going, that he has come. In fact, he barely even tells them what exactly lies ahead. There are a couple of key moments where he predicts that he's going to die and be raised up and only to his disciples. But by and large, he is leaving breadcrumbs so that when he dies and rises up, all the pieces align. He is letting them stew over this question of who he is. In fact, it was for the, basically in the 19th, starting in the 19th century and through a good chunk of the 20th century, there were lots of uh, biblical scholars who would point out this fact. Jesus never said he was divine. And then as scholars started to reflect more 
on Jesus actually in the context of first century Judaism. Even the most critical scholars have started to come back around and realize that, oh, it is true that all the symbolism, all the actions that Jesus takes, the things that he says are things that only God can do and say. So even though he doesn't come out and say, I'm God, the second person of the Trinity, it's crystal clear that he is divine. I mean, think about this. Uh, if you've been following in this series with us, so many of the miracles are designed to have Jesus doing only the things that God can do. Like, be the one who rides on the storm and walks over water. The one who feeds his people in the wilderness. The one who forgives sins. Or drives out demonic forces. Or raises the dead. These are divine prerogatives. This is God's business. And Jesus is all over it. Jesus is divine. And so you can see that as, Je as this whole identity of Jesus is what starts to crack open for the early church, a number of really important things, right? One of them is the actual identity of God. As the triune God. One and three, three and one. Right? I mean, this is not something that just shows up as if, oh, wouldn't that, isn't, doesn't that just make sense? And God is one and three, three and one. No, it's never been a common sense <laughs> decision, right? It's been actually thinking through the work of redemption and what its implications are for, for our understanding of God. You see, God doesn't, in other words, just hand down a philosophical treatise about who he is. Instead, he acts to save us. And as he saves us, he reveals who he is. It is in his work of redemption that he shows us who he is, shows us his character, shows us even his identity as the one who is Father, Son, Spirit, one and three, three and one, forever. It's also in, it's also in this context of redemption that, we, that we've hammered out this idea of Jesus having two natures. Trying to figure this out, right? What does it mean that Jesus is divine but also takes on flesh? Does what we failed to do? Because it, it's this realization that in Jesus working out the calling of the anointed one, of the Messiah, of the Christ, that we really actually fully understand what it means to be human. He was the person who did what we have failed to do. And both the Trinity and the hypostatic union of Christ, which is the super technical term for it, are mysteries. <laughs> we can't explain them. Uh, J.I. Packer, a, a pretty well-known theologian who passed away just a couple years ago, used to say, you know, these are mysteries that we don't explain, we can only formulate. <laughs> we start to realize what we're dealing with as we... As we look at the work of redemption that God has done. It's only there that we start to understand him. And so as the Messiah, then, we see Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, because this is what is unique about David, is he is all three of those things, prophet, priest, and king. 
He's understood as a prophet because he wrote prophetic psalms. The sweet psalmist of Israel wrote about what God was going to do. Again, Psalm 110 is one of those moments. But what Jesus does is speak a better word than even David did. What Jesus does is speak God's final word about himself and about who we are. It is what Jesus accomplishes that is the last word. Jesus' work is definitive and final. David was a priest as well. A strange priest, he wasn't always. In fact, he wasn't even a Levite, which was the sort of priestly uh, clan within Israel. But he did serve as a priest. And weirdly enough, this very psalm that Jesus quotes, later on, it says, the anointed one will be a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a character that comes up once, very mysteriously in Genesis 14. He was a priest to God. This is before the Levites even exist. He shows up one time. And then all of a sudden, like in this psalm, talking about Melchizedek again? We just thought he was a passing character. I'm not going to go into all of that. If you want to, you can go to Hebrews, and there's a lot made of this idea in the, in the book of Hebrews. But, he is a, but while David was a priest bringing others to, before God, Jesus is, of course, the great high priest, who by virtue of his obedience brings all of us who have faith in him to God once and for all by the sacrifice of his life. He's the great high priest. And he's also the great king. Now, David was a good king. Most of the time, anyway. Um, David certainly has his problems. But David is always seen as the great king. Even though Solomon was the peak of Israel's influence geopolitically, even probably the height of its wealth, David was seen as the one who was the great conqueror, who had secured Israel's identity, you might say. But Jesus is greater than David because he defeats, of course, the worst enemies, sin and death. And even now continues to live and reign over the earth by his spirit. And one day, openly, of course, to take back what is rightfully God's. So this, this whole idea of Jesus being the Messiah, being the one who was to come, is key. It is, you might say, it's, it's the lens that Jesus himself asks us to understand his work through. And it also is the thing that unlocks some of the greatest mysteries of the faith, is Jesus' work as the Messiah. And so this is the question. As we're thinking about what true religion is and what it is not, is who are you hoping in? Are you hoping in yourself? We can either hope in ourselves or we can hope in Christ. That really is, at the end of the day, the two options that are available. And if you want to 
be the one who, get, who tries to speak the final word over your own life. If you want to be the great prophet of your own life, the Bible gives us a warning. That will not go well. That our claims about our own greatness are quite contrived. They're pretty shallow. They're pretty fragile. And you may try that in a host of different ways, by your career, by the success of your family. You might try that through romance, through the affirmation of your friendships. We will look to others to give us that approval that we're trying to create for ourselves. But any way we do it, comes up hollow. Unless, of course, the approval doesn't rest with our lives. You can try to be a priest for yourself, to be good enough to bring yourself before God, to be somebody who really is good enough. We've been talking about this over and over again uh, through these couple chapters. And I hope it's been clear just how weak that is. Just how, well, frankly, we rarely live up to our own standards. Never mind having any sort of uh, objective standard. And so what we need is someone else to bring us in. You can try to be the ruler of your own life, the king over your own life. And that will fail you. I mean, I think even of our prayers this morning and, and a number of deaths that we are reflecting on, that our lives are fragile indeed. Way beyond what we're comfortable reflecting on. Unless, of course, someone has defeated sin and death on our behalf. And this is the work of Jesus. This is the good news, is that you don't have to be good enough. That you don't have to be successful enough. You don't have to be strong enough. Because Jesus is. Stronger than you could ever be. Better than you could ever be. More sufficient than you could ever even trick yourself into thinking you are. God is all those things. And that's the good news, is to trust in him, to hope in him. See, Jesus takes their attention, brings it back to himself, because that is the question. That's the most important question. That is the central question. That is the thing that the scribe was missing in the law, was that he would not be good enough. He needed someone in his place. And that's true of all of us. And that is the question. That is the differentiating factor between what is real religion, what is true religion, and what is false. Is any religion that is about us and proving that we're good enough is a false religion. But whatever looks to Jesus is true. This is the very test of the Spirit's. If you look at 1 John 4, 
there's a strange moment where we're, where we're told to test the spirits, test, in other words, what's kind of going on around us. And the test of the spirit is whether Jesus is being testified to. That is the test of what is really spiritual and what is not. What is truly spiritual and what is fake. What is some ersatz religion? The who question is the most important. But how do we live that out? And what does that look like in my life? Jesus doesn't stop there. He looks around. And he, he calls their attention in verses 38 through 40 to all the religious leaders that they've been just been, he's just been interacting with. And then he calls their attention in 41 and following to this widow. Now, the, it should be obvious what's going on with the scribes at this point. In fact, if you want the, the longer version of verses 38 to 40, you can look at Matthew 23, where Jesus, you know, it's, a, it's just the, the kind of amplified version of this, um, the longer version, and Jesus goes full Old Testament prophetic and pronounces seven woes on the religious leaders. It's something to behold. But this is the abbreviated version of that, is this is the problem with the religious leaders. It is not that they love God's law. That's a fine thing. It is that they are more concerned about how they can be good enough than anything else. And so they love all the accoutrement of being appreciated, right? They, they love what looking like they're great. They love wearing the fancy clothes. They love people honoring them in public. They like being seated in the best places. They like getting invited to meals. They like being important and honored. And they fail, in verse 40, to love the Lord with all their heart and to love their neighbors as themselves. They fail the very test that Jesus had just talked about in the previous passage because they put on a show and prayer and they devour the houses of widows. In other words, they're exploiting those who are the most vulnerable. It looks good on the outside, but the fruit's rotten. See, counterfeit righteousness is always performative. It always is. It's always focused on looking good. A telltale sign of performative righteousness is that we are stuck comparing ourselves to other people. Did I get the best place? Did this person, did these people notice me? How do I stack up against others? And there's a way in, the, in our own modern sensibilities of doing this it, that sounds authentic in our kind of raw honesty about how, because we live in a therapeutic society. So if I can sort of be the person that bears my heart to everybody, you can do that in a way that's performative. 
There's a, there's a great U2 song called The Showman, uh, and it's basically a joke about what they do, the whole song. It's about how they, uh, they show off their vulnerability. And th- this, is, this is just part of it. The showman gives you front row to his heart. The showman prays his heartache will chart. Making a spectacle of falling apart is just the start of the show. It's a great line. Making a spectacle of falling apart. See, you can be performative in a way in which you are unassailable in your righteousness. Where you look like you're perfect. It is uh, what Flannery O'Connor called the black wordless conviction that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. I'll be perfect. I'll convince myself I'm perfect. But we can also do it by falling apart and make a spectacle, get the attention we long for. And we're just being honest, right? And this is the thing. We live in, we do live in an image-driven age. So we are exceptionally susceptible to this. Both to the desire to look like everything's perfect and the desire to look like we're just the most honest person around. And I'm telling you how messed up everything is. And both of them are ways of putting on the show. It's a slightly different show, but it's really the same thing, isn't it? It's performative righteousness. It's a way of convincing ourselves either by conventional means, traditional means, or unconventional, more modern means, that we are good enough. That we're the good people here. We're the ones who are being honest. The contrast to the religious leaders is this widow. In verses 41 to 44. She doesn't make a show. Uh, You know, I I think probably no one else noticed her. Except for Jesus. Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? (laughs) Noticing those who are, who go unnoticed. Those who are marginal. But what Jesus notices about her is that she loves God. And she is investing in his kingdom. Where she could, rightfully, try to hang on to everything she has, as little as that is. And I'm not sure if Jesus is, you know, the commentators debate if Jesus is being uh, hyperbolic by saying she gave everything, or, you know, or just a lot for her. Who knows? Um... But this is somebody who makes no show of it, because you could make a show of that. (laughs) You could make a show of, I'm giving my very last bit. Everybody look at this. This is all I've got, and I'm giving it to God. You can make a show of that. But she doesn't. Instead, she honors the Lord first. She invests in Him and in His agenda. 
her, for her authenticity is not making a show either of how good she is or how much she lacks because both things are true. She could show off either way. But instead, trusting in the Lord and trusting in Him to provide. She's living out, in other words, the values of Jesus' kingdom. Now, she's waiting for Him. We don't know, obviously, a lot about what she's thinking uh, in this moment, but she is waiting for, because she's investing in something she can't see. We know she's waiting for what God's going to do. And so what she does is consistent with his kingdom. It is investing in the Lord, investing in the identity that he gives her, investing in his care over her. And this is what it looks like to have faith in Jesus. This is what active faith looks like. It means I don't have to put, my, put on a show. I don't know if that means the Instagram photos are good or not. <laughs> Or right or not, but it also maybe means I'm not so worried about judging other people. Like maybe I'm not, because I'm not having to worry about whether I stack up well to them or not. Whatever their motivations are, it isn't an existential threat to me. Maybe they're good, maybe they're bad, I don't know. And I don't have to know. Because I don't need to know how good they are so that I can prove that I'm better. I can trust that the Lord is sufficient. It's difficult to live by that kind of righteousness. But it's freeing. What this woman experiences is a freedom that those scribes Jesus was talking about will never know. The freedom to trust in the Lord. That doesn't make it easy. She still went home and had to figure out how she was going to find a meal. How she was going to get through the next day, the next week. But she knew whose hands she was in. Living by faith in Jesus is a freedom beyond comprehension. And all of us are, who have faith in him are learning how to do this. This is why it is freeing to hear from those who have walked the path before us. Why it's so important to know and to understand that. Not because they had it all figured out, but because they bear witness to the sufficiency of Jesus. And the things that seem so urgent to me, the things that I'm building my sense of goodness around, are usually so silly in hindsight. Have you ever had this experience? Boy, that was so important to me five years ago. You know, when you get to Middle school, you look back at who you were a few years before and you think, oh, so silly what I was worried about. 
And then you get to high school, and you think, Ugh, middle school, Jeremy. <laughs> then you get to college, and you're like, oh, a high school guy I was, you know, what was he worried about? And then you move on, you know, and every, you can always look back five years and think about how silly the things you were concerned with were. But the tr- to trust in Jesus is to know that from the outset. That most of what I'm concerned about, most of what eats me up inside is looking good and looking better than others, and I don't need to do that. And to slowly learn the freedom of being counted righteous in Jesus, of being freed by what he's done. That's going to look different for each of us, isn't it? What it is that you stack up your, you know, with to others, how you think about that, will look different. But being freed from it always looks the same. It is trusting in Jesus and worrying a lot less about how I stack up against others. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would know the freedom of Jesus. We pray that we would know what it is to be considered righteous, not because of what we've accomplished, not because we look better than others, but because Jesus is better than all of them, because Jesus has given his life in our place. As we leave here today, as we go off to work or school or whatever callings we have in our lives this week, as we think about the last week of Jesus' life. Remind us that this is our hope, purchased in the body and blood of Jesus, guaranteed by his resurrection, so that we don't have to be good enough. Instead, to realize that we have enough, more than enough, because of him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.